This is a very difficult time at work, time of the year. I literally had to run away from work. Um, I, I just couldn't get anything done because just so much being torn. Dragged left, right, and center. You'll be happy to know that this is the fifth, I know it says part eight, that's because the first one is an introduction. So really this is the seventh and the final installment on our journey on the Feast of Jehovah. Now I have to say that I didn't taste, taste any of these slides, so if it comes out in Debele, then you know exactly what has happened, so you please forgive me. So the feast that we're looking at today is the Feast of Tabernacles. So there is really not um, um, much uh, to comment on, uh, but I just thought we would take the time to remind ourselves of some of the issues that we have looked at uh, during this uh, journey. So the Feast of Tabernacles, we're going to read from Leviticus chapter 23. reading from verse 39. I think actually Verse 39, also in the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And you shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of thick trees, and widows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days, and you shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booth seven days. All that are Israel's born shall dwell in the booth that your generation may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in both when I brought them out of the land of Egypt I am the Lord your God and Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feast of the Lord so the word booth sometimes is used here um, in verse 33 verse 34 speak unto the children of Israel saying the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. So it's the same word that is used. 
Now, we would remember that the first feast that we looked at, the first one was the Passover, which is on the 14th day of the first month. We'd remind ourselves that we were emphatic from the very beginning that these feasts, these types that are in the Old Testament is God's language to communicate to his, listener, to his listeners, to his people, really, so that they would know what God is doing. One thing that is amazing about God is that he has revealed himself to us. He has revealed himself to us in the person of the Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he also has revealed himself to us in his word so that we don't have to be people that are groping about in darkness as if we don't know what God is doing. And the way God communicates some of these things is amazing in the sense that you either love the Bible or you don't. If you love the Bible, it is very likely that you become a believer. Because it goes hand in hand. Because the things that are interesting in the Bible, they are spiritual. It's because the Bible is not like a magazine. The Bible is the word of God communicating to us the mysteries of God. Great things, but in simple words that anybody can understand. So, in God's methodology to speak to us, he uses things that perhaps to a casual observer, they seem very boring, not interesting at all. But to a trained child of God, these are things that intrigue us. They cause us to dig even deeper, to try and understand what God is saying to us. The feast of Jehovah, they are one of those such things which when you read them, you're like, really? You know? Sprinkle blood here, kill here, these days here, these days there. Really? What am I to get out of this? You would have to be awakened by the Spirit of God to truly appreciate some of these things. Because in them, God is communicating very profound things. So we're going to look at some of these things as we go through what we have looked at in the weeks before. So we, we remember that in the first month, God starts the first month by changing the calendar and would remind ourselves that whilst Israel had their own civil calendar, when God started dealing with Israel and took them out of Egypt, things were going to change because God was now in charge. They were now under the direct authority of God. This is no different to you and I when God found us. We were busy with our own things, but when God came, he changed things. And the first thing that God did with Israel was change their calendar. Instead of the first month of the civil calendar that the Israel used, God started on the seventh month and allocated it to be the first month because this is the beginning that God is starting with these people. I don't care what your history has been or what anybody's history has been. I don't care what anybody's um, um, uh, 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 pedigree is. When God starts with you, he starts with a clean slate. This is what is amazing about God. That murderous people like, the, like St. Paul, who was Saul then, 
would actually be cleansed completely by God and start afresh anew as a newborn babe. This is what scripture calls it being born again. It's radical. It's radical. It erases the history. It erases everything. And you become a brand new child. So when God took Israel, he established them, started them afresh with them, and appointing the seventh month, making it the first month in Jewish religious calendar. So on the first month, and on the 14th day of that month, he starts with them with the Passover. And we remember that scripture is very particular on this. We remember that if you look in Leviticus chapter 23, whenever God says, and the Lord spoke unto Moses, he groups these feasts together. And it's not by chance. It's because God wants us to observe these this feasts in the way that he has set them for us so that we can understand what is communicating across to us. So the first two feasts, you will notice that if you read in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 1, God says, and the Lord spake unto Moses. And he is going to narrate from verse 1 all the way to verse 8 under that clause. And within those clauses, you find that he covers these two particular feasts. And that's because they are related. The first, the first feast, the Passover, is a one-day feast. Because it's one of those events that God deals only once. And we know what the Passover is. Because scripture tells us, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be new lamb, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is, cru is crucified for us. Christ died only once to become a Passover for us. So when we observe this feast, we notice that the Passover is a one-day event. But when you look at the second one, we find that it's actually a stretched out feast. It runs seven days. Why? Because this is an ongoing exercise. This is something that continues. And we know what scripture says to us about this, about unleavened bread. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what we see here is that this unleavened bread is an ongoing seven-day feast because this exercise, oh, sorry, this exercise of getting rid of malice is not a one-day event. We were saved once. I was saved December 1997. But guess what? Up to today, I am still fighting leaven within me. Because this is an ongoing process. And if you are a child of God, this will never end on this side of the veil. So what we see here is that God is encouraging us in his word that we, now that we are his children, we have an ongoing process of getting rid of leaven. And it's not easy. But what we see is that these are very closely linked. Next to that, we find that there is the feast of first fruit. Now, 
The first feast has a date. It's on the 14th day of the first month. The third feast doesn't have a date. It has a day. What scripture tells us is that it is on the Sabbath. Now there's something very telling about this because what this means is this feast of first fruit didn't occur on the same day every time. Because if you think about it, the 14th, which is the, 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 the Passover feast, may be at any day of the week. And immediately after that, you then have the seven days of unleavened bread. But scripture says that the feast of first fruit is on the first Sabbath. So it could be that the 14th was Monday. So which means the feast of first fruit is going to be six days later on Sunday. But it could be that the 14th is a Friday. It could be a Saturday. It could be a Thursday. So we can see that the day moves but the date is the same with the Passover. But whereas for the first fruit, first fruit, the day is the same, but the date keeps moving around. What does this tell us? Again, the first one, the first two, the Lord spoke to Moses from verses 1 to verse 8. Here, again, scripture tells us that the Lord speaks to Moses from verses 9 to to verse 22 because these feasts are also coupled together now we will remind ourselves here that God is talking to us this is not just intellectual knowledge God is communicating to us now you fast forward now you ask yourself about the first fruit what scripture says about the first fruit First Corinthians, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. We now know this because scripture tells us. But let me show you something about the power of scripture. If there is anything that you can take from these series that we have been having, is that scripture is supernatural. Christ died. On the year that Christ died, if Christ was to become the first fruit. He had to rise on those day, first day of the week. Because that is the day of the first fruit. So it's a day, it's not a date. So if Christ was to rise three days after his death, as the prophet of Jonah, it was of necessity that Christ would die on the year that the Passover, when Christ died, would be three days away from the first day of the week. You don't make this stuff up. This is God overriding. You remember when the Jews, when they tried to, Christ, to crucify the Lord. They said, no, 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 no. Let us not, let us not do this during the Passover. People will revolt. So as far as the authorities of that day were concerned, they tried everything in their power to avoid Christ dying during Passover. 
But because this was God's plan from the very beginning, it was of necessity that Christ died when he died. Because when he died, he had to rise again on the day of the feast of first fruits, which is on the first day of the week, the Sabbath, after the feast of the, the two last feasts had happened. So it is of a miracle that Christ rose on the same day as the feast of first fruits. And sure enough, now scripture tells us that Christ himself is the first fruit of them that slept. But there is another truth again about the feast of first fruit. The feast of first fruit, the priest will wave a sheaf of the first fruit. This wasn't the whole harvest. This was the first harvest. This was the beginning of the harvest. The rest of the harvest will still come. This was the, this, these are the spring feasts. So this, this harvest here is barley. So the first fruit is not all the harvest, but is a pledge of more harvest to come. And sure enough, but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruit, and then afterward, they that are Christ it is coming. Christ is the first fruit, but Christ is only the beginning of a much bigger harvest that God is doing. What am I looking at in this room tonight? I am seeing a harvest. One man died. In this room, there's quite a number of us. You go to Zimbabwe, there is the same gathering. You go to Scotland, there's the same gathering. You go to America, there's the same gathering. You go to North Korea, there is the same gathering. God is increasing and is bringing in his harvest. So that's pledge of more to come. And this is fulfilled on the Lord's resurrection day. The feast of weeks. And when the, Lord, the day of Pentecost was full come, they were all in one accord. Now, between the first fruit, sorry, between the first fruit to the feast of weeks, there is 50 days delay on this. And we know, after 50 days from the feast of first fruits, when you read in Leviticus, it tells you, in Leviticus 20, it tells you to count 50 days from the day of first fruit. If you count first 50 days from then, you land on the feast of weeks. And what happens in the feast of weeks? What is the feast of weeks? Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord. Notice that scripture uses the word fully come. Because when the Jews were doing these things, they were doing them ritually. They were not understanding what they were doing. God said do it. Let's just do it. But God in all these things, he was leading up to the actual fulfillment 
of the first of weeks which will happen when it's fully come when it is complete and this is the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 so whilst the Jews were seeing all these feasts just happening day after day, week after week, month after month, but God was communicating to the world that there's going to come a time when indeed the fu- this fulfillment will be fulfilled in the birth of the church at Pentecost. God gets his first portion in the first fruits and then fulfillment of the day of Pentecost. And then the, another thing to note on the feast of weeks is that in the offerings there is two loaves offered. Now if you know anything about scripture, leaven is often not a good thing. In all the offerings, this is the only offering that loaves are brought with leaven. Why is that so? What happened in Pentecost? Jews and Gentiles came together. The birth of the church brought two people who are defiled, imperfect, and brought them to form what is now the church. Folks, we are defiled. We are imperfect. But praise the Lord. He loves us still. And he brought here two loaves, two people, the Jew and the Gentiles, imperfect as they were, hating each other even sometimes, but brought them together to make the church. Now, I don't mean, don't mean to be splitting hairs here, but if you go to verse 10, you would find that the word first fruit that is mentioned on this feast of first fruit is singular. We mentioned this before. If you've got a, a Newbury Bible, you'll find that it's got an S in italics because it's not plural. The first fruit there that is mentioned is singular. And if you look at the original word that is used there, it is not just first in place. It is first in preeminence. It's a different word that is used in verse 20 when it talks about the Feast of Weeks because there is first fruits that are presented in the Feast of Weeks. But if you look in that one, it uses a plural because in the original, it's a different word that is used there. Why? Because only the Lord is the first fruit. Only the Lord has the preeminence. Only the Lord is first in stature. Whereas for us, it is plural. That's the first fruit that is used in the Feast of Weeks. Uration, for the lack of time. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in new word, in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand by knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known 
unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. Do you see God's plan? How it is unfolding in these seemingly strange offerings. Let us move on. From the Feast of Weeks to the next feast, there is a huge gap. The Feast of Weeks is in month three, is on the third month. But the next feast is going to be on the seventh month. Do you think it is by chance that there is such a long pause from the, this feast to that feast? I don't think so. You and I, Pentecost happened here 2,000 years ago. Between the third month and the seventh month, there is no religious activity in the Jewish calendar. What are they doing? They're harvesting. That's what is happening. It seems, so to speak, God has been silent since the birth of church. Nothing has happened. Since the birth of church. But something has happened. One thing has happened. The gospel has been going from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. You and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the work that began at Pentecost. The church is expanding. The Jews were busy harvesting barley. God is busy harvesting his saints. And we are today in this church age. The next feast Blowing of the trumpets. We are, this is going to be the next time that God resumes his dealings after this long pause. As far as you and I are concerned, when we look at these feasts, church age is here. When we look at all these four feasts that, is, that have gone before, they are all in the past. Christ is the Passover. We, we have to get rid of unleavened bread. That has happened. Christ, Passover, he was crucified. That has happened. Unleavened bread, this is ongoing life. First fruit, that's Pentecost. That has happened. 
So the first fruit, that's Christ, who is the first fruit. And then, first of weeks, that's Pentecost. All this has happened. When we look at it from our vantage point, we see all these as events that have happened in the past. That leaves three more feasts, which we are still yet to experience. For these three feasts, as far as the church age is concerned, they are in the future. They are ahead of us. We are going towards the next three feasts. And we don't know when that next trumpet is going, that next feast is going to happen. Let us look at the next feast. See? Repeat of a slide. That's exactly me. The blowing of trumpets. Again, from verse 23, the Lord and the Lord spake unto Moses. He's only going to describe this blowing of trumpets from verse 23 up to verse 25. Now, let us look at what scripture says about the blowing of trumpets. As far as his prophecy is concerned. Joel chapter 2. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Verse 3. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall blow, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Let's look at another verse again. And it shall come to pass, this is from Isaiah 27, I believe. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt. And you shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. When we dealt with this trumpet, we looked at the different ways in which trumpets were used in Israel. And one of the things that we established is that trumpets are used for a calling. They were used to call the elders to come to, to come to God to receive instructions. They were used to call people to war. They were used to call um, 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 various leaders and people like that to, for different instructions. So trumpets were used to call people in. I believe with all my heart that this prophecy is not yet fulfilled. There is going to come a time when God is going to bring back Israel in the land. Now, this won't be Israel that is coming back in, in a political format. This is going to be Israel that is going to come back with God this time. People, some people believe that God has no plan for Israel. But I believe with all my heart that there is going to come a calling when God will blow a trumpet to bring Israel. God is going to gather back Israel, back into the land of Jerusalem. This is in the future. 
What happens after that? Day of atonement. Feast number six. And again, it starts with the Lord spake unto Moses from verses 26 to verse 32. Let us notice what the day of atonement entails. It shall be an holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls. For whatsoever soul it shall it be, whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in the same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. Now let us remember what the day of atonement is. The day of atonement is when the priest went into the holy of holies to atone for sin of Israel. You would have thought that Israel would be rejoicing for such an occasion. But not according to scripture. This was a solemn day. Because it is positioned between two feasts. The feast of tabernacle, which is the last one after this, and the feast that is before it, the feast of trumpets, which are celebratory feasts. But in this feast, there is no celebration. Because people are grieving. What are they grieving? In this feast, the priest went in three times. The Lord went once. And in this feast, two goats are brought for the sacrifice. But when the Lord died for us to atone for our sins, he was both the scapegoat and the goat whose blood was sprinkled. Now, the scapegoat is to us what? But the blood is to God. Christ satisfied both. To appreciate Isaiah 53, we should read Isaiah 53 in its original context of who is intended. It is true that we enjoy Isaiah 53 because it is true unto us. We can say that because we know. But if you remember from, if you look at it from the feast, from the day of atonement, that Israel is going to be afflicted on this day of atonement. Why is Israel going to be afflicted on this day of atonement? Isaiah 53 spells it very well. Why? Because there is going to come a time when Israel is going, when after they have been gathered on the Feast of Trumpet, they are going to sit down and they are going to think. They are going to consider. And they will realize that him whom they thought had no beauty in him, they will see him. When the Lord first came, they had no desire of him. But there's going to come a time when they will remember that 
He was despised and rejected by men. They despised him and rejected him. And they will remember that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But they hid their faces from him. They will realize that as he carried that cross, he bore their grief and carried away their sorrows. They don't say it now because Israel is in unbelief at the moment. Now, this is nothing anti-Semitic. This is just reality. But there's going to come a time when that unbelief, when God blows the trumpet and brings them, God bringing them, as he resumes his dealings with Israel, they will realize that when he was stricken and smitten of God, it was because of them. He was wounded for their transgression. When he was bruised, it was for their iniquities. And they will realize that they all alone had gone astray. They were wrong. And yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Imagine when these stones in the heart of the Jew what the response is going to be. Do you think they are going to celebrate? No. Like in the day of atonement they will be afflicted. And now Israel will be coming back in belief for their atonement. Let's look at another scripture. Zechariah chapter 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. It's going to be a dire time. Jerusalem is going to be surrounded. Jerusalem is going to be in trouble. Technology will not be able to rescue them. Their military will not be able to rescue them. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Like everybody else, they will have to repent. And they will look upon him whom they pierced. You don't make this stuff up. Him whom they pierced and said, let his blood be upon us. We will not have this to reign upon us. Then they will mourn him. This is going to cut the heart of the Jew asunder. And they will mourn as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one in bitterness for his firstborn. Only then would the last feast come in on the 15th day. I promise you I won't be long. I'll be five minutes on this one. On the 15th day of the seventh day, 
when you have gathered in the fruit. Notice that in this feast, it happens after the gathering of fruit. This is after the harvest. God would have finished and completed his plan. And only then will they rejoice. Verse 40. This is a feast of rejoicing. Now they would have learned their lesson. After repentance in the, in the day of atonement, after they've been called back into the land in the feast of trumpets, now they can rejoice because now they understand what God has done for them. Now they understand that they were wrong all along. There is going to be mixed emotions. And this is why that God for this feast is going to remind them. This feast is meant to remind them. Just like in Israel in the wilderness, God instituted this feast. That they remember that it was God who brought them out of the, out of, out of the wilderness. It is God that would have saved them even though they had rejected his Messiah. And at that time, with that knowledge, they will be able to rejoice. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. It's amazing that this is the only feast that is mentioned is going to continue because for Israel, they will have to remember what God has done for them. Now, finally, when we started this series, we mentioned that yes, there are seven feasts of Jehovah. But it is telling that if you read from Leviticus chapter 23 in the first verse, it starts with Sabbath. Chapter 23 verse 3. It is the Sabbath of the Lord. When God created the world, when God's intention, scripture tells us that he rested. When he finishes his work, when all these feasts are finished, when all these prophecies are fulfilled, if you read Leviticus chapter 23, it ends with the Sabbath. The eighth day shall be a Sabbath. Verse 39. I don't think that's a coincidence. I didn't have time to prepare this slide. But uh, let me read it instead from Hebrews chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should deem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said. Verse 6, Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached enter into enter enter not in because of unbelief. It is my belief that this last Sabbath is the last rest that God has for his people. Eventually, after all the turmoil of all these prophecies. God is going to fulfill his purposes to bring us to rest. Let us remember where we started with this journey. I have also spoken by the prophets and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. This is merely scratching the surface. This is for you to go and dig for yourselves. Within these feasts, there are all sorts of sacrifices. There is a lot that you can glean on those sacrifices. They mean big things. They are not empty words. What am I trying to say here? Scripture talks about hope. Maketh not ashamed. In the times that we live in, we are being threatened with nuclear weapons, COVID, inflation, sicknesses, bereavement, loss of employment. Sometimes we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring us. Sometimes we are perplexed. Sometimes it feels like we just have no answers. We don't know what to do. Child of God, it is important that we understand that this is not the end. It is important that we understand how the story ends. I say this experiential that sometimes when everything that we can hold on to seems to be shaking, the only thing that keeps you steadfast is your knowledge of the God that you serve. This, to me, has been what has been sustaining me. And my life has had its own ups and downs. If God would strengthen me, I am sure that is what he wants to do for his people. His plan will come to pass. The first four feasts, we have seen them. They have come to pass. And unbelievable as it was, they came to pass. The next three will also happen. I believe it with all my heart. If we hold on, on to that, I think we'll be best positioned to weather the storms of this life. Let us pray. I'm sorry I went overboard. Our precious Lord and our Savior, we thank you. 
our words are just stumbling words. And Lord, some of these things, they are best known by, by the heart. We understand these things to the heart. And maybe words are not sufficient. But we pray, O oh Lord, that these things, Lord, that we have learned, we would carry them in our hearts. That they would model how we live. They will model how, Lord, we treat different circumstances. They will model us what attitudes we ought to adopt. Indeed, Lord, we may not know the day or the hour, but we know that the promises of God will surely come to pass. Help us, therefore, Lord, to treasure these things as we wait for your coming. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.